It's Monday, August 23rd. About a week ago, Naomi Osaka was in the news again. If you remember, I talked about on a prior podcast, I don't remember when, that she had pulled out of the French Open. Long story short, she doesn't like doing press conferences right after her matches. I can't imagine anybody does. I think it's a miserable time to do them. And I don't understand why the press insists on that. Give it some time. But doing them, you know, within, I think they end up doing them within, you know, like 60 to 90 minutes of the matches. I I just, you know, you put yourself out there and you are so mentally focused on what you're doing. And it's a really intense experience. And then post-match, it's like you let go of all that. And whether you win or lose, there's a lot of emotions going wild. And it's not really probably the best time to have people talk. And emotions is, is what I want to talk about here. Because about a week ago, Naomi Osaka, she's one of the best tennis players in the world, by the way. She was doing a press conference or news conference, whatever you want to call it, on Zoom, and was asked a question by a reporter, Paul Doherty of the Cincinnati Inquirer, about, he's essentially saying, look, you don't like dealing with us in this in this format, but doesn't this format also serve your outside interests, interests other than, than tennis? And how do you balance that? And she gets some clarification and they go back and forth. It's not contentious at all. Um, and she gives, I think, reasonable enough answers uh, to the question. And it's, it doesn't seem emotional at all. It doesn't seem like a, a negative exchange. Uh, but as the next reporter asked her question, Naomi Osaka started crying and eventually she left the room for a little bit and then came back. So clearly this, the subject of this, these, these post-match press conferences, is an emotional one for her, which is fair enough. I wonder, pure speculation, I haven't given this a ton of thought, I haven't mused on it for any real length of time, but I wonder how much of that has to do with what, for lack of a better term, we're calling wokeness. Here's what I mean. When people started complaining about critical race theory, suddenly nobody had heard the term, suddenly everybody heard it. We don't want it taught in our schools. And of course, people on the other side said, well, it's not taught in our schools. It is taught in law schools. And, you know, they took this kind of narrow, legalistic, completely dishonest point of view, because the the point was that these tenets of not just critical race theory, but critical theory in general, that these were being taught in schools, which they surely are, sometimes as young as preschoolers. And in any case, That has permeated our culture, like it or not. When I was young, the only place I ever saw anything like that was in punk rock. And it was really par for the course. 
it was everywhere. This kind of stuff that we we look at now and we look around and see, you know, everybody's a racist, everybody's a sexist. If you're if you're male and white and straight, you're an oppressor. All this, you know, kind of crazy Monty Python-esque stuff. It was par for the course in punk back in the 80s and, and much of the 90s. And as I've said before, I think a lot of us laughed at it, but it had power. That point of view had power and people watched their step because you could get essentially canceled before that was even a term if you didn't by, say, maximum rock and roll. You had to have a pretty big fan base to be able to withstand an attack by a fanzine like that. But now, of course, it's mainstream thought. And there's a generation of people who have grown up with it. This doesn't just go back to 2016. It goes back a lot farther than that. And it started in the universities. And as the people who went through the universities went out into the workplace, it didn't really matter at first because they weren't in positions of power. But as they began to gain positions of power, not just in academia, but in every facet of society, then that kind of thinking, not because people were being nefarious, not because people, most people anyway, were sitting down saying, hey, we have to indoctrinate people, but just because that had become their view of the world, that naturally began to get passed down. And the, the apogee of that for me was a few years back reading an article, and I believe it was an article about an NHL player uh, getting in trouble for calling another guy a fag on the ice or something, which I would think is pretty standard for a hockey player. And I believe it was somebody for the Blackhawks. And there was an article, and hopefully I'm not conflating the two, but it doesn't really matter, because there was an article, sports writer for the Chicago Tribune, one of the two big dailies in Chicago, third biggest city in the country, in which he completely unironically and with an apparent assumption that everybody would know what he was talking about and would agree with what he was talking about, referenced rape culture as if that's a real thing, as if we don't live in the least rapiest culture in the entire history of the human race. And I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was reading a, a maximum rock and roll column from 1987. But there it was. Since then, I don't think much surprises me. But if you've got a generation of people who have grown up believing this, and you've got to understand that the main tenet of what we call wokeism, critical theory, is emotional. It puts basically all its emphasis on the emotions. Logic is at best way down the list and largely irrelevant. It, irrelevant. At worst, it is a tool of white supremacy and the patriarchy. So emotion is everything. And because 
the theory encourages victimhood. And because emotion is the most important thing, then your feelings determine the morality of any given situation. So if somebody says something you don't like to hear that makes you feel a certain way, a certain negative way, then regardless of that person's intent, regardless of their meaning, they have done something wrong to you. And in fact, they may have done an act of violence to you with their words. So you got to watch what you say. You'll find when you come to these, uh, whether it's wokeism or anything else, you'll, you'll find that when you really get down to it, what it comes down to is stop talking. When you come to any ideology, virtually any ideology, you'll, you'll hit a point eventually where people will say, stop talking. In wokeism, it's just blunt. It says your words are violence. The most egregious example of this, which is, I think, applied in good faith by uh, just about nobody. I mean, there may be some incredibly ignorant, shallow people out there who really believe this, but I kind of doubt it. But the idea that in, in trans ideology, that if you agree, disagree with any of the tenets of trans ideology, you are literally killing trans kids by suicide. That's how they get you to shut up. So debate is unwelcomed. And even in the most seemingly open forums for discussion, it seems like you will always reach a point where people say, stop talking, stop talking. And usually it's, it's inside baseball kind of stuff where somebody is basically being accused of not being ideologically pure enough. Ideologically. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think both ways are correct. But the emotion is the primary thing. So if you've grown up in that culture, can you really blame Naomi Osaka for being in that situation and letting her emotions get the best of her? Because she's been raised to believe that emotions are everything, that emotions are reality. And that's got to be a really tough thing to deal with when you're an athlete and when you're in a highly competitive situation like that. And unfortunately, a lot of situations in life are very competitive and they're very emotionally charged. And if we let our emotions get the best of us in those situations, we will ultimately fail. I don't have any dog in this fight except that she's a great tennis player and could end up being one of the greatest of all time. And I would hate to see this start leaking into her on-court performance. The fact of the matter is, it may be wrong, but you've got to be extremely mentally tough to do certain things in life. And competing at the highest levels uh, of athletics is one of those things. 
And what I mean by being mentally tough is simply that not that you don't feel strong emotions or not that you don't deal with specific problems that are really difficult, but that you go on in spite of them. I mean, this is the key to life. If you don't do that, you stop living. For a, a lot of people, it's pure ideology. Let's go with id. It's pure ideology. But the effect that it has on regular people who don't necessarily su subscribe to that ideology is incredibly negative. And that, I think, is what many of us are worried about. What kind of people are we raising? Because these people are going to be looking after us and changing our diapers when we're elderly. What kind of people are we raising? Are we raising people who will call for a timeout every time things get tough? This isn't me saying, gee, things were better in the old days or anything. This is just me saying, we can't live if that's the way we're going to live. We can't function if that's the way we're going to function. I'm all for giving up when you can. I'm all for it. But it's not a way for a society to function. It won't work. Now, speaking of reporters, there was there's a website called The Pillar that was started by J.D. Flynn and Ed Condon, formerly of the Catholic News Agency. And last month, there was a big article by them that resulted in the resignation of Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, who had been the general secretary of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. He's a priest. Monsignor is, a, I believe, just a, an honorific title given by a bishop. And before I get into that, I would just point out that in their, on their about page, their mission statement, their second to last paragraph of it, they say, the pillar says, we'll be reverent, but not sanctimonious. This is in what they're going to do with their website and their reporting. We'll be reverent, but not sanctimonious. Prudent, but not prudish. We don't think Catholic journalism has to be cloying or puritanical because we don't think the Christian life should be lived that way. So the long and the short of it here is that they found a way, somebody approached them, I believe, who uh, offered to give them information on this Monsignor gleaned from supposedly anonymous apps on his phone. So this data that app that probably most apps collect on us, all of us, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, this data is supposed to be anonymous. But if you know anything about the person you're targeting, apparently there's a way to link that up and figure out exactly where the person is going, what apps they're using, et cetera, et cetera. And so they use this information to... Well, I'll just read from the article. An analysis of app data signals correlated to Burl's mobile device shows the priest 
also visited gay bars and private residences while using a location-based hookup app in numerous cities from 2018 to 2020, even while traveling on assignment for the U.S. Bishops Conference. According to commercially available records of app signal data obtained by the pillar, a mobile device correlated to Burl emitted app data signals from the location-based hookup app Grinder on a near-daily basis during parts of 2018, 2019, and 2020. At both his USCCB office and his USCCB-owned residence, as well as during USCCB meetings and events in other cities. So this is a guy who was breaking his priestly vow of celibacy and was doing it on company time. I'm against that as a Catholic. I'm against that. I think priests should keep their vows. And some of the people criticizing the pillar have said that it's homophobic. And I don't think it is. And yet, the very first paragraph of this article that talks about his resignation says, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, formal, former General Secretary of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, announced his resignation Tuesday after the pillar found evidence the priest engage, engaged in serial sexual misconduct this is the important part here, while he held a critical oversight role in the Catholic Church's response to the recent spate of sexual abuse and misconduct scandals. See? So they're linking in the first paragraph, they're linking what he did, hooking up with dudes on Grinder. they're linking that to his role in the USB... CC regarding sexual abuse cases involving clergy and misconduct scandals involving clergy, which refers probably primarily to Ted McCarrick and him pressuring seminarians to have sex with him and, and you know, trying to watch them undress and grabbing their butts and whatnot. That was Cardinal McCarrick. So a lot of Catholics are angry about this because this type of thing that McCarrick did and the, and the sexual abuse of, of children and teenagers was essentially facilitated by, if not the hierarchy of the church all the time, although sometimes it was, at least by the structure of the church. I'm talking about the institutional church. In other words the scandals didn't need to go as far as they went. They could have been nipped in the bud if things had been handled differently and if there were levels of accountability, which there aren't, and it's one of the great failings of the institutional church. And many Catholics are rightly angry about that because a lot of people got hurt. And not only did a lot of people get hurt, but very few of the offenders paid a price for it. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here, and that the pillar in their first paragraph of this article would try to draw a parallel between what Burl did and what McCarrick did, or what the priests who abused minors did, is, I think, unconscionable. 
and I'm not condoning what he did. Like I said, I think priests should keep their vows, and I'm 100% against it. And absent anything else, I think it's a good thing that he resigned. But there are other things to consider. And it's funny, isn't it, how the ends always justify the means when it's something that you care about and something that you want. J.D. Flynn, in particular, has gone out on Twitter and made a very big deal out of the fact that what they did was legal, as if legality equals morality. And it hasn't seemed to occur to him that this sort of data app signal, privacy-invading, tracking technology could ever be used against him or anybody he cares about or anybody involved in any of the issues he cares about. There are a lot of people that could be called conservative in the church, and I hate those labels when you're talking about um, when you're talking about uh, religion, because they're not really as clear cut always as uh, as they may seem to be, at least in in the political sense. But a lot of people that we would think of as being on the right in the church are concerned about a society that is increasingly secular and increasingly hostile toward the religious believer, particularly the Christian believer. And I think there's some truth in that. For most of our country's history, Christians ran the show. And that is less and less the case. And people feel threatened by that to different degrees. Understandable. I'm not really sure where I stand on that. I think some of it is just hysteria. Some of it is real. But when you're a person who is concerned, as many people are, about a society that seems determined to ostracize you, that seems determined at some point, at least based on their actions now, to implement some sort of social credit system by which believing Christians will be essentially shut out of society in any meaningful way. If you're concerned about that, how can you not be concerned about this technology? How can you not be concerned about this unbelievable invasion of privacy? Is it really that hard to take a principled stand on this? Because that's really what it comes down to. What it really comes down to is principles. And it seems to me, maybe I spend too much time on the internet, but it seems to me that many people in this country, I would venture to say most people in this country, and all you need to do is look at the political discourse to see it, that many people, if not most people in this country, do not understand the concept of principles. They seem to sincerely believe a principle is the exact opposite of what it is, that it is a an ethical belief that is to be put into practice only when it suits you and your side. And I don't understand that. And if you attempt, if you're foolish enough to attempt to ever take a principled stand on anything, you will be branded a traitor to the cause quicker than you can say Jack Robinson. And by the way, the people on the other side 
who should be applauding you for doing it won't. They will just, they will just focus on the things they don't like about you. They will give you little to no credit for taking a principled stand. So it's no surprise that people are so unprincipled these days and that the, the pillar, the people who are at the pillar are so unprincipled because that's how we do things these days. And being principled gets you exactly nothing. Nobody respects it. But it's funny, isn't it? They think it's not going to happen to them. They think we did something good and the ends justify the means. And what is ironic about that is that is the exact opposite of the attitude we're supposed to take as Catholics. We don't believe as Catholics that the ends justify the means. If an area of the world is suffering from overpopulation and decreasing that population would result in less poverty and less starvation and better living and working conditions for everyone, we still say no, contraception and abortion are wrong. That's what the church teaches because the ends don't justify the means. But I guess if you're out to get a guy like this, then apparently in their world it does. I don't want priests in the church who are breaking their vows, any of their vows. But I also don't want people sneaking around and invading the privacy of other people. And I don't want to hear it was legal. Abortion is legal too. So you guys okay with that? No, they're not. There are a lot of things that are illegal that we still think are immoral. And I think this is immoral. We don't care. That's the problem. We don't care. Personally, we willingly give up our information to Facebook and Google and YouTube and Amazon. Go back 30 years. We, our jaws would drop if you could show us the future and how willing we are for nothing to just hand over all our information and let these people invade our lives. It makes you sound paranoid. It makes you feel paranoid to talk about it, but haven't we all had the experience of talking about something, never doing a search for it on the internet, but talking about something, and then suddenly we're seeing ads for it? And, and I know, I've read, that there have been times where, yes, your microphone is going, and yes, people are picking up certain words. And it's not for ultimately, I guess, nefarious purposes. It's for marketing purposes. Uh, you may think that's nefarious, and that's fair enough. But the fact that this can be done at all and that we're inviting this into our homes, I don't get it. I know that when I first heard about the Amazon thing, Alexa, somebody asked me, oh, are you going to get one of those? I got one. It's awesome. And I said, no, I'm not letting Amazon into my home to listen to my conversations because that's what those things do. You literally put a device into your home 
that literally listens to you talk. And that information is collected and used by Amazon. It's unbelievable to me. Of course I wouldn't. I'm not, having, I'm not comfortable having an honest or personal conversation with my phone in the room. The reasons that these companies are doing this may not be nefarious on the face of it, but clearly the stuff is being logged. And clearly then it can be accessed. Nothing's secure. We just went through T-Mobile being hacked. And apparently social security numbers are everywhere. I assume my social security number has been out there for years at this point. Everybody I do business with has been hacked by this point. And we don't think anything of it, really. And this is, this is the point we've gotten to, where we can actually sit down and, and justify these tactics. And like I said, the most amazing thing is we somehow think this is not going to come back and bite us on the ass. As always, I've enjoyed my time with you immensely. I've got a busy week coming up. I will try very much to do a podcast uh, next week and the week after, but Poutine, our bass player, is going into the studio today to finish tracking or to start tracking and finish tracking his parts for the new Screeching Weasel album. And then in a couple weeks, I think I will be doing the lead vocals. So that's coming along nicely. Very enjoyable work. And with any luck at all, this will be out next year. So lots coming up as I prepare for that, but I will do my best to continue doing the podcast until next Monday. Have a great week, and remember, I love you all very much. So long.